Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 15th, 2016, and this is episode 1710 of the Survival Podcast. I'll put a little shock in your ass right now though, guys. Here it is. January 15th, 31 days in January, Saturday doesn't really count that much because you're going to get up tomorrow and it's going to be there and it's a day off. Half of January is flipping gone. Half of the first month of the new year is already gone. What are you doing to further your liberty? Just a little kick in the ass from Jack, right out of the gate to keep you focused on developing more liberty, more personal self-sufficiency and self-reliance and self-security in your world because if you don't, society moves you in the other direction. This is a great day for that, though, because we're going to hear from a variety of different topics because it is an expert counsel show. These are your questions for our expert counsel. You can learn about our expert counsel by going to the survivalpodcast.com and looking at the About tab, and you'll see Meet the Expert Counselor. They're all mentioned in the show notes for every expert counsel show. So the show notes for the expert counsel show of 1710 will have them all listed as well. And, of course, you can find all of that at the survivalpodcast.com or... If you don't want to type that all out, tspc.co, tspc.co. Again, Tango Sierra, uh, Tango Sierra Papa Charlie dot Charlie Oscar. No M there, no com. tspc.co is a shortcut to get to the website. Don't tell you guys that enough, I guess, because we do have new people all the time. Anyway, before we get into your questions for the expert counsel, let's remind you how you ask a question of the expert counsel. You email me. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You put TSPC expert in the subject line. You tell me which council member your questions for. Please use their first and last name. Again, you can find that all out on the website and you'll hear them today or half of them today on today's show. Uh, that'll help me find those questions when I'm putting together the, uh, the monthly brief to them to get their questions in. And, uh, hopefully you'll hear your answer in a show in the coming month. I now send one email at the beginning of each month to every council member with two to three questions each. I break the council in half for shows like this. Hopefully I don't get too many pikers on the expert council not getting their questions in, so I don't have to double up on people too much, but uh, occasionally it does happen. And we get those out to you every month. Before we get to your Q&A, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, 
There's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it. From the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can? or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning? Whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators? Got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year, 1710, because the episode is 1710. Alex has two for us today at TSPWiki.com. The first is Ukraine, the separation of powers and government. And the second is the Copyright Act is passed, and that would be the Copyright Act of 1710 in, in England. There's been many copyright acts. And uh, I'm going to read the Ukraine one because, well, as many of you know, my family is from the Ukraine. Uh, the Hermetic region in central Ukraine has approved a constitution outlining a separation of powers into legislative, administrative, and judicial branches. The constitution was written by the Ukrainian Cossack named Philip Orlik a military leader and diplomat who has recently been elected Hetman, the first officer one step below a king or a prince. My take by Alex Shrug. Let's not get too excited. The Hetman state of the 18th century was about as independent as Hungary was in 1956, right before Soviet tanks came rolling into Republic Square. Peter the Great considered the Hetman region to be a military state to be dealt with right after Sweden. Russia was at war with Sweden, and the king of Sweden just loved the Hetman state. He loved anything that tipped over Peter the Great's apple cart. A Hetman is like a military governor, so comparing the Ukrainian constitution, which defined a military government with most rights granted to the Cossack elite, is something equivalent to the United States constitution is a stretch, but it's a start. What it actually is is an idea. An idea put to paper and actually formally accurate that government should not have absolute power, that the government itself should have to contend with other branches of the government, thereby making it to where no one person or small group can just immediately make a decision and implement it. That there, there has to be some sort of separation of power. And this is not the first time that that's ever occurred in history, but it, it actually was a little bit more common in, in, in for, for more ancient history than it was at this time. 
what you're looking at here right now is the beginning of the dissolution of the feudal order. And that's part of why we've had so much warfare going on over the previous 100, 150 years here. Because this was all building to a head. Things moved a little more slowly at that time than they do today. But I think one of the things that you're going to realize as you look at the turmoil of today, and I'm saving something special at the end of today's show to go more into this, is that you're seeing the end of many orders right now. And as you evolve in society, everybody always, when they look at history, looks at where we ended up and how great that was and how wonderful it was and how it was worth the sacrifice. But they're not. when you're studying history, you're not the people that lived through the sacrifice. You don't know what it was like. And it becomes a little bit easy to condense something into being a lot shorter than it was. To look at World War II and the United States victory in World War II as being absolute and you know, never doubted, and I mean, my God, we, we came out of it as a world power, and, you know, to look at five years and go, that wasn't that long. Five years can pass like that, indeed, but not if you're being shot at or you are living in fear of your life for that entire five years. It can seem quite like an eternity. Well, these types of shifts take a lot longer than five years. We are still having shifts, and we will have shifts throughout all of humanity, but I do believe we are at a major turning point. And again, I'll talk to you a little bit about that at the end of today's show. With that, I want to go ahead before I bring our bring our first uh, guest on, uh, for our first council member on to answer a question, remind you, you can help support my show and the work that I do by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. With that, let's go ahead and get into the first question I have for an expert council member today. This one's for Doc Bones, and it comes to us from uh, Josh, no, Greg. And it is, if you could only have one or two in-depth herbal medical reference books, which ones would you recommend? So, hey, Doc Bones, what say you about herbal medicine uh, reference books? Hey, this is Joe Alton, MD of www.doomandbloom.net, and my mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Today's expert counsel question comes from Greg in Virginia. Greg asks, if you could only have one or two in-depth herbal medicine reference books, which would you recommend? I understand that the optimal approach of learning any skill in depth would be under the training of an expert. However, my current schedule is just not conducive to traditional classwork. I do have opportunities to read and do some online research, so any guidance you can provide to help identify some reference documents is appreciated. Greg, when I first became interested in writing about what I call survival medicine, I was, and still am, a licensed conventional medical doctor and surgeon. I realize, however, that most of the stuff that I use might just not be available in times of trouble. They're certainly not going to be manufacturing pharmaceuticals, so it only made sense that I needed to know what plants in my own backyard might have medicinal benefits. When I decide to study something, man, I go all in, and as a result, I have a pretty impressive library of books on different subjects, but especially medicine, some of which date back to the year George Washington was born, because that's what it's going to be like if we are truly off the grid. I have a number of books that might be useful to the herbal medicine student, but what kind of student are you? If you know what words like expectorant, emetic, postpartum, and hepatic mean, you probably can benefit from really in-depth books that could serve as textbooks even for the aspiring naturopath. 
In this case, you should consider Medical Herbalism, the Science and Practice of Herbal Medicine by David Hoffman. It'll not only tell you about different herbs and different problems they treat, but it'll tell you how they work chemically. There's a big glossary in the back to acquaint you with terms. Now, a little further down the academic ladder, in other words, not as technical, but still one of my favorites is Prescription for Herbal Healing by Phyllis Balk. Uh, That's B-A-L-C-H. Now, what I like about this book is not only does it talk about herbs and problems that they treat, but it also gives you a section on each herb called Evidence of Benefit, which tells you what the data says, and there's a section in the back that tells you specific studies that have been done. Then there are books for the casual student, easy to read with lots of pictures. This is useful because you should be able to identify the plant when you see it, right? So you should have one of these at least, even if you opt for the more scholarly volumes. Try the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Healing Remedies by C. Norman Shealy, MD, and yes, the National Geographic Guide to Medicinal Herbs by Andrew Weil, MD. You should be able to get a copy of any of these books on Amazon or eBay. Don't worry if you get an older edition. This stuff doesn't change much. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite herbal remedy handbooks is Wythe's Pocket Dose Book, printed in 1874. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy and our weekly podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, on blogtalkradio.com. Hey, great stuff as always from Doc Bones. Really love having he and uh, Amy available to answer your questions. Uh, definitely go check out their podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour. It's a great, great resource. Um, a couple additions to what Doc said. Number one is you heard him throw out some words at the beginning I don't remember, but I'll pull some out of my head. You know, a carmative, expectorant, a hemostatic, nervine. These are actions, and, and they also are actions sometimes are used to describe what a pharmaceutical drug uses, but specifically there are herbal actions, and, and knowing what these herbal actions are are really uh, beneficial when you're doing research on herbs because when you read, you know, that, that something is a, a hemostatic, for instance, you know that it arrests bleeding or promotes blood clotting, okay? Uh, and by the way, you want to know some hemostatic herbs? Uh, roses, uh, blackberries, and geranium are actually hemostatic herbs. And so a reference that I can give you is a long time ago, I did a four-part series on 40 of, the, of the, the biggest and most common herbal actions. There's actually more than 40, but if you know those 40, you can pretty much read any herbal reference book and understand what they're saying. So I'll put a link today into the, the tag for all four of those episodes, part one through four, and uh, that would be a good place to get more knowledge on herbs as well. Next, you heard uh, right toward the end, Bones mentioned uh, one of the books he mentions is by doc- Dr. Andrew Weil. I have to tell you, just with that mention, I, I find him to be probably one of the most fantastic authors in the entire space of natural health, natural medicine, etc., herbal medicine, you name it. Uh, I have read almost everything the man's ever written. His philosophies have had a huge impact on me and how I view health and healing and why I look at herbal uh, medications as a holistic approach toward health rather than with replacement therapy. And I can't recommend anything by Andrew Weil uh, hard enough. Though 
the pocket guide from the 1800s uh, for housewives on the dosage amounts is something I may have to look up and see if I can't add to my collection as well because that sounds cool. And it kind of points out the one other thing before I go on to our next uh, question. Um, not that long ago, people were responsible for their own health to a large degree. Um, you, you fetched a surgeon when somebody had like a two-by-four jammed in their leg, uh, or when things were beyond what you could do, you went to whatever medical help was available of the day. I, I'm glad we have doctors today. I really am. But I think we need to also regain being responsible for our own health. Next up, I've got a question for Nick Ferguson. We're turning about as far as you can, like 180 degrees away from the question from Doc Bones when you're still talking about plants. Uh, it is, what are my best chances in ideal time of the year, weather conditions, etc., and steps to take to preserve and pass down some family history in the form of apple trees from my grandfather's farm in upstate New York uh, to, and moving them to the North Carolina area? Details, my grandfather has some old apple trees that are in our back 40 where I grew up rabbit hunting, spending time with brothers, cousins, etc. We would always pick apples off these trees. We got out of New York and my wife and I purchased an old farmhouse in the country and would love to grab some apples off these trees or start some seeds for pure nostalgia's sake. It would be great to tell my kids the stories of ha and have the trees here with us. I'm a beginner at starting but did stratify some seeds and random, from random apples last year. It got me thinking about trying this with my grandpa's trees in upstate New York. I do not know the varieties of apples, but given my grandfather's style, they well could be wild apples. They live out in the woods and, and hay fields and have never been uh, pruned or had any real attention. They just grow apples. The location is the Canadian border east of Lake Ontario and somewhat good part of New York if there is one. Uh, any particular rootstock I should focus on or try multiple stocks? When should I cut the material for the grafts and how long do I have before they should be grafted? Was hoping to have someone send them down as I do not get back up there much and the farm is now going to be, uh, is now going out of the family, unfortunately. Hope this is enough info to help and thank you for all you guys do for us. Nick, that sounds like a pretty important task. What say you on this? Man, I think it's really cool that you're trying to do this, and I'm honored to be able to help you try and preserve some of your family heritage. So since this is kind of like a salvage mission, and you've got to go so far to get the materials, you know, it's several states away, I think you should take a shotgun approach to this. Get some apples for the seed, look for seedling trees coming up near the mature trees, take cuttings to try to root them. I know that's going to be really hard, but... Hey, if you're there and you can, get the material and give it a shot. You know, why not? It might work. If they're wild apples, they just might root. I know chances are they won't, but try it. And take some cyan wood for grafting. Now, honestly, one of the easiest things to do is going to get an It's going to be getting an already growing apple tree from a nursery and graft lots of pieces of cyan onto that tree. It's not the best way of preserving your cultivar, but I think it will probably be the easiest way to get some skill and buy yourself some time to get better at grafting and to have some of that genetic material close to hand for attempting again down the road. You know, you don't want to just rely on that one tree for generations. It really would be better to get some rootstock and graft it properly, but that would really would buy you some time because if you try 
you know, putting 20 grafts onto a five foot tall apple tree in a pot and one of them takes, then you've saved it and you have some living cultivar material right in your backyard instead of hundreds of miles away. Then you can spend some time researching the best rootstock for your soils and your area and try grafting again if you need to because you've got it right in your backyard. But if it's in your budget, you know, buy 20 to 100 pieces of different rootstock material and graft them all and see what you get. You know, there's lots of different kinds of rootstock and depending on your soils, you might need one over the other. So what you might want to do is contact your local ag extension agency and ask what rootstock, what apple rootstocks work best in your area. Bear in mind that clonally propagating that tree is going to be the only way to have a copy of it. So if you go with a seedling from the tree, you may get something similar, but it will never be the exact same apple. If you graft a piece of it onto another apple tree, you'll have a genetically identical copy of it in your backyard. So that's what I do. The shotgun approach. Try seeds, try seedling trees that already came up nearby. Try hardwood cuttings. That means like an 8-inch long stick of last year's growth. The sign wood's the same thing. You get last year's growth. You put that uh, for hardwood cuttings. You put that in the ground with the tip sticking out about 3 inches. Do that when it's dormant, the sooner the better, and try grafting. One of those is bound to work and get you something from that apple tree. And I think that's kind of the the main goal here is to get something from that apple tree. Even if it's not exactly the same apples, as long as it's something, then that's a really cool heritage to pass down to your kids. So I wish you the best of luck saving those apple trees. That would be a really cool thing to be able to hand down to your kids. I'm Nick Ferguson with the Expert Council. You can learn more about me by going to my new website, homegrownliberty.com. Y'all have a great weekend. Great stuff from Nick. I, I agree. I would do everything Nick said. And then I'm going to throw in the Jack Spirico if you want to write an insurance policy for yourself and are willing to spend a little money addition to it. That upstate area of New York is full of people who love plants, trees, orchards, etc. There's got to be some arborists in the area. There's got to be some people in the area who run nurseries that are like private nurseries, not big giant box nurseries, etc., where you can actually talk to the owner. I, I would ask to, to, to your, your family that's up there if they could just research that for you and get you a couple different phone numbers or websites or whatever. Get in touch with those people. Try to find someone who does this professionally, who has the experience, and, and explain your situation. Most people in that business would fall over themselves for the opportunity to assist with this, especially if you say, and by the way, take as much of it as you want for yourself. Because we're talking about prunings off of old giant trees. There's so much there. You could have enough scion wood to produce 10,000 of these trees in a couple minutes, really. So what I would say is if you would be willing to take some of these cuttings for me as an insurance policy for me, uh, and let my family show you where these trees are, and graft them as bench grafts onto um, rootstock, and grow them out for a year to one-year whips. I will buy them from you for I'd say fifty bucks a piece. And I mean, you can buy usually a one-year whip apple tree that's 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 done that way for somewhere between fourteen and twenty bucks. But this is my family's heritage. 
And you may find the guy saying, you know what, if, 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 if it's cool with, that I take this thing and market it as it was produced locally and whatever, I'll do it for free. And you just pay me the shipping on the trees when they're ready to ship or when you can get up here or something like that. Um, but I would try to find somebody like that. You may even be able to get somebody to do it for you, uh, you know, with you send them the scion wood, the, 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 the cuttings. You need to make sure you're getting that, that, you know, that, that new growth though that you're, you're, you're getting for the scion. So you want, like, this is why I think it would be better if you got somebody locally could go out to the tree, knows what to look for and take the cuttings. Otherwise, you may just look around and find some people online that have small nurseries that do their own grafting and say, could I send you some free scion from these trees? And here's the story and the history of these trees. And I'm trying to preserve these trees. And if you would, you know, produce three or four or five grafts for me, while you're taking these other ones to do whatever you want with, I would buy them from you, you know, once they're established. Or you can graft them and ship them to me because if they do a bench graft, like Cuffle Creek Apple Orchard in, in, in Southern California does, they grow these hot, warm climate apples. They take M111 rootstock and they graft a single scion bud on it. And I got 30 trees shipped to me for like 10 bucks because it's just the rootstock and a scion bud. Now that means you're going to have to Grow out your one-year whips anyway on your own, but if you do your own grafting, you're going to have to do that too. And that's a little complicated because you have this little bitty shoot starting to come up and this great big root, and you've got to balance your watering and everything. And that's why Nick suggested that possibly you might go buy a full-size apple tree or two, you know, five-foot apple tree from a thing and just graft the shit out of it so that you could go, okay, if any of these take... I've got genetic material. And that's why I said I would do what Nick says, too, in case any of these other things fall through. But I wouldn't hesitate to reach out to somebody because the people that do this in small nurseries and stuff, especially that part of the country, they live for stuff like this. They, they literally live for these opportunities. So I would consider adding that. Next question is for expert council member Gary Collins. The question's from Jamie says, Gary, is there any truth to the health benefit claims of apple cider vinegar? I've seen reports that apple cider vinegar helps with blood sugar, heart health, weight loss, sore throat, acid reflux, etc., etc. Is there any truth to these claims? And if so, how do we best incorporate apple cider vinegar into our diets? Thank you, Jamie. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we have a Interesting question about apple cider vinegar and whether it's health claims that are always touted and have been around for a while, such as if it helps with blood sugar, heart health, weight loss, sore throat, acid reflux. It's got this all-encompassing uh, claim of health benefits. And this is one question I've been asked actually several times, and I've researched it over the years myself. I've used apple cider vinegar and to be honest with you, I have really found that none of the claims to be really true. Um, not to say that it doesn't have some benefits, but the benefits, I think, have been greatly over-exaggerated. So, and you have to be careful with it. Uh, a lot of people don't make the mistake and don't dilute it. Uh, you're supposed to drink it in a full glass of water with like one teaspoon uh, to two teaspoons, some say one to two tablespoons, um, that I would keep it at. I use, I would use a capful. But, um, to give you a little history on where some of this came from, it's, it's been used historically for a long time. But any, any carb, almost every carbohydrate 
that can be fermented will make vinegar. So apple cider vinegar has kind of been given, like I said, touted, but it, it's just vinegar. I mean, you can make vinegar from grapes. You know, uh, I think of vinegars in a lot of things. Uh, kombucha has, uh, you know, that's why it has that vinegary smell because it's starting to form vinegar. Uh, pickle juice, I mean, that's vinegar. So there's many, many uh, things that have uh, vinegar in them. Now, using it for the health benefits, the biggest problem I have when I started doing my research quite a while ago is Bragg's is always the brand touted by, you know, all the, you know, naturopaths and all these ancestral, ancestral health and supposed paleo experts. And here's the thing about Paul Bragg. He is known as a big time huckster in his day, even lying about his age by 14 years. So he was touting himself looking really young because of all the health. Well, it's because he lied about his age. <laughs> so, and he lied about his education. Um, he claimed to have a PhD and be an ND and completely false. I don't even think the guy graduated high school from what I remember. Um, it, he was a well, well-known huckster in the day. And that's where a lot of these benefits became highly touted because he was in the community of natural health. And like I've told you guys before, you know, there's a lot of people that like to, you know, poo-poo uh, modern medicine and go after all them from that community. Well, I have found being in that community and investigating that community, they can be just as bad, if not worse at times. So always be careful. The good thing about apple cider, cider vinegar, if you want to experiment with it, is it's cheap. You know, uh, I recommend getting the organic unfiltered. And un, I, I don't know if you can get that unpasteurized. I, I think there are some versions of it, but most of it's going to be pasteurized, obviously, uh, for food safety reasons. Um, but go with that. You want to use a uh, non-distilled uh, vinegar because you want you want all the murkiness and everything. You don't want it uh, basically purified. So the best thing about this distilled vinegar, so that's what you use for your cleaning agents. And I actually have a video on YouTube of where I make my own home cleaner that's vinegar-based. I use vinegar because it has uh, antibacterial um, uses. You can use it on wounds. Uh, I use it, like I said, for cleaning. You can use it, to, you know, on acne, anything, you know, that is bacterial uh, infections or anything of that sort. But back to some of the uh, health claims as far as blood sugar and, and uh, it does – I mean it does have minor – in the studies that have been done is it does – and it's fact. It does inhibit the digestion of starch, certain starches. Not a lot. Um, you know, it will have a, a influence on your blood sugar. Yes, but what you're doing is you're taking apple cider vinegar instead of changing your diet. So you're kind of masking or trying to to override the negative things you're already doing. So long term, it's just it's not going to work. Um, can you do any harm by taking it? No. Um, you know, it does help with the absorption of certain of some minerals. Um, but if you're eating healthy, it doesn't matter. You're going to absorb them anyway. Uh, it doesn't really contribute to weight loss. It, it doesn't. It, it like I said, it, it inhibits the digestion of starch. But not enough to make a major difference. I think I saw a study where a group, it, it, it was one to two pounds over a certain several weeks. And once they stopped using it, they, they both groups ended up, the group that didn't use it and the group that did use it, they all ended up 
the same same weight after they got off the diet. So it didn't it didn't change much of anything. Um, far as sore throats, the thing with that is again antibacterial. So if you have a bacterial infection in your throat, uh, salt will work just as well. Uh, our sea salt, a diluted sea salt solution, gurgling with it, same thing. Um, far as acid reflux, that has been a big one that uh, I've gotten asked a lot of questions over the years on that. And there's two kind of theories behind it that are completely opposite of each other as far as the belief. One states that uh, apple cider vinegar actually has a alkaline effect, even though it's acidic. Don't, don't ask me. Um, so the claim is that it can, once it gets in your body, it can become alkaline instead and and dilute out an acidic you know state wherever that would be, but then it's contradictive because then they say well it's acidic and you want to use it because most people who uh, in the natural world they claim that most people have heartburn because they don't produce enough stomach acid. Oh boy, yes and no on that one. That one's a little bit tricky. Um, but the natural people have jumped all over that one. And I have found that not to necessarily always be the case. There are other things going on in the digestion that cause the heartburn. Um, but so what it does is you're saying you're adding the acid in to help you uh, break down the food, especially protein. That's where most people end up getting uh, heartburn from if they are not producing enough stomach acid because you need stomach acid to break down protein. That's what it's for, the initial stages. Uh, so with as far as heart health and that no i just i really haven't seen any evidence of that there there hasn't been a ton of studies on it but there's been enough but like i said again if you want to try it it's a cheap alternative you know i think it's like 6 bucks for a bottle of it of the of the brags and that's the like most promoted one but as long as it's organic and non distilled you'll be fine um but more than likely, you're not going to find any benefit from from taking it. Um, I hope that helps. I know these there's a lot of convoluted information out there, and it gets really tricky in the natural health world. Um, there's in the natural health world, there's a huckster around every corner, just like there is on the you know modern medicine side and and supplement business. It, it's everywhere. You, 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 it doesn't matter where you go. It, it's it's in everything. But you know, with this one, I hope it helps. And, and again, I want to emphasize, do not ever take uh, vinegar or apple cider vinegar straight. Um, you will burn and do damage to your esophagus and your throat. But again, hope that helps. If you have any questions, hit the comment section or email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Yeah, I mean, I'll add to that. I think the problem with the people that hype certain, you know, freely available, inexpensive things that can be beneficial to your diet and to your lifestyle, like apple cider vinegar or like hydrogen peroxide, etc., is they do damage to what the perception is by the average person as to what these things really can do. Uh, there's an article that I'll have in the show notes to you that goes a little deeper into this from Dr. Mercola. Dr. Mercola, to me, 
is one of the few people in this world whose information I generally trust. I don't always agree with his opinion, but I trust his motivation, I trust his research, and I trust his facts. And in general, I trust the overall interpretation of what data means. And it does mention several reports, including some of the stuff that Gary just brought up, And uh, it, it's not a Pollyanna pie in the sky that'll save you, but you know there are there are statistical uh, reports done where type 2 diabetics using apple cider vinegar were able to move their blood pressure as much as 25 points, and, and that is significant. Of course, 25 points is not necessarily 25 percent. If your blood sugar is skying at 500 or something like that, it's not a huge percentage, but it's still significant, and it. It's the kind of results that if a drug gets it, then the next thing you know, the FDA approves it, and every doctor in the world is being called to prescribe it. So I don't think that apple cider vinegar is the wonder thing that we've we've claimed that it, it can be. And I also have to agree with Gary that in the end, it's vinegar. I mean, you know, well, apple cider vinegar does all this stuff. What about malt vinegar? What, what about pear vinegar? What about, you know, red wine vinegar? I mean, in the end, it's vinegar. So... I think that most of what it does, most of what it does, it would be equal to say that just about any vinegar would do it. So why do you think apple cider vinegar, particularly in the United States, has such a high esteem for these uh, medicinal uses? I would surmise, I would guess, because this country grew more apples than just about anything else you could ferment up until Prohibition. That apple cider was the drink of choice, if you weren't drinking whiskey or something like that up until Prohibition. When Prohibition came along, the apple orchards turned into uh, food orchards, and when Prohibition went away, beer took over. And I think that that's probably got something to do with it being apple cider vinegar. Though there's long historical evidence that people have used apple cider vinegar, but again, it's been a very common fruit grown for thousands of years all over the world as it moved out from Kazakhstan, and the way apples were grown up until, you know, grafting was really understood and generally practiced, which even, grafting was been done for hundreds of years, but generally practiced by the average person is very new. This ties in with the question from Nick Ferguson. When people settled this country, you would just take a big handful of apple seeds with you, and you'd set up an orchard on your, on your settled piece of land. And you'd end up with a whole bunch of trees that produced apples that were, nah, and you don't mind... You know, the ones that don't make good cider, well, they make good vinegar. And you don't mind doing that. Where if you were able to get your hands on something like grapes, right, well, you, you weren't going to turn that into vinegar. You're going to make wine out of that or eat it as grapes or what have you. So I think apples have been this abundant fruit that were considered abundant enough to be turned into vinegar. And therefore, it was the common vinegar that would be used for these folk medicine things. And I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm saying... When you see, you know, for $29.95, learn how apple cider vinegar can cure your cancer. Wah, wah. All right? I'll leave it at that. Okay, the next question I have is for Chef Keith Snow on the sous vide method of cooking. And I know a little bit about this. I've seen people do it on TV, uh, but I've never really researched it in depth. It seems kind of cool, and I, I'd like to know more about it, too, because I love to cook. Chef Keith Snow, can you tell us more about this method of cooking? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer Eric's question 
regarding sous vide cooking. Now, basically, Eric says, give me your thoughts and opinions on the sous vide cooking method. Now, Eric, um, before I do that, let me just quickly mention that uh, although this show is an audience rather is filled with preppers, you guys are also cookers. Believe me, you guys do a lot of cooking and you have a huge interest in food. And why do I know that? Because I field questions um, every week and probably spend between an hour to two hours a week answering your cooking questions. People just email me and you, you're free to do that, Keith at HarvestEating.com. And I'll give you my thoughts and opinions on anything. And sometimes people ask me about questions and I'll give them multiple page answers. But sometimes... I'll give them one sentence answer and, and, uh, it's usually something like this. Well, that's a great idea, but I personally have never done that or not interested in that. So, uh, I can't give you much detail. And while I can't tell you, Eric, that I'm not interested in sous vide cooking, um, it's not something that I practice on a regular basis. So for the audience benefit, what the heck is sous vide cooking? First of all, it's spelled S-O-U-S, and then the vide is V-I-D-E. And basically what it is, and it kind of came about and gained popularity with the rise of molecular gastronomy. And this is this ultra-precise, um, this is where you see foams, like foams, and you know, I'll give you a great, uh, there's a great chef named Grant Ackett's. And I'm probably butchering his last name, but it's like A-C-H-A-T-Z. He's, I believe, in the Chicago area. Young dude. Used to work under Thomas Keller, who is an amazing chef from California. And this guy would do things like, you know, serve something in a bowl that's in another bowl. And then in the other bowl is dried up rosemary and orange peels, for instance. And then bring it to the table. And then when the diner, when the waiter or whatever puts the plate in front of the, the patron, then somebody comes over with boiling water and a tea kettle and pours it into the under the bottom bowl. And now all of a sudden you're about to eat something that's in the other bowl and you've got the aroma, the boiling water hit the rosemary and the orange peels and it's hot. So going up your nasal passages is this incredible aroma. And then... So that sets the stage. Then you're going to, you know, bite into the succulent, you know, roast pheasant, whatever the heck it might be. So this is this whole um, ultra presented, you know, molecular gastronomy foams and, um, you know, painted plates. I mean, it goes on and on. And these people are just in the stratosphere of, of not only cooking ability and creativity, but um, – just use of ingredients. I mean, it's pretty high tech stuff. Now, how does that translate? And this goes back to my, my answer for you is how does this translate into the, the average TSP or Chef Keith Snow's own life? Um, I'm not interested in that kind of stuff personally. Now, sous vide, let, let's get into it. Sous vide is basically taking, and you can cook a host of things, whether all types of protein, vegetables, you name it. And it's basically, you take these, Items and you put them inside of a food grade, and hear me on that, a food grade vacuum bag. Now, a lot of you will have food savers or other things at home, and you can put things in there and vacuum seal it. That's fine. You don't need, you know, you don't need to go out and buy special bags, but you can't use Ziploc bags. Um, 
because they're just not going to hold up to the sous vide cooking method. But anyway, once you have foods in these bags, they're vacuum sealed, so there is no air in there. The the uh, bag is clinging tightly uh, onto the the meat or fish or whatever it might be in this example. Then it's put into the sous vide you know, machine, so to speak. And this came from laboratory work where they would, laboratories would have these, um, heaters in there that were, I mean, digitally precise to the degree and they would hold things at a very constant temperature. Now they make machines like you can do a search online for the sous vide supreme and pay anywhere from three to four hundred dollars for this thing. It's basically a water heater, precise electric water heater. And then, you know, you can cook all types of food in there. You put it in the bag, it's vacuum sealed, it goes into the water, and then it's a timer. And this takes a very long time. And the secret is it's steady heat for a long time, let's just say 160 degrees. Now, the one thing you're always going to see, particularly with meats, is that they're cooked above the danger zone. You want to be above 141 or 140 because things can spoil underneath that. So it's usually, let's just say 160 to 180. It really depends on what you're cooking. But the idea is there's, it's a very soft and gentle heat and it takes place over the course of hours. So yeah, I could take a eight ounce salmon filet and I could cook it in four minutes flat in a roasting dish or saute on the um, stove or grill it. Or I could cook it for, you know, three hours using sous vide. And what's the difference? Well, when it comes out of that sous vide bag, number one, most of the time you're not adding any fat. So while it's not fat-free, there's no added fat. And then the meat or fish in this example is cooked very evenly, and a lot of times it doesn't even look like it's cooked. And that's what's kind of bizarre about it. It doesn't even, it just looks like it did when you put it in there in its raw form. But it's very tender and wonderful. Um, but you'll see a lot of people that do, you know, a steak in a sous vide and you could cook it for six hours and then they'll take it and brown it in the pan because while it's going to be super tender, it is lacking some of the wonderfulness, that caramelization, that, that Maillard effect that you get on a grill or a roasting or sauteing. So it does have its, its drawbacks. Now, uh, like I said, this is not something that I do. Uh, I don't want to discourage you from doing it, Eric, but it's not, you know, it's certainly at my stage of life. I've got three kids. We're busy. We do all this. I mean, I don't have time to mess around with sous vide. You may, and it can be very interesting. And, um, if you're this precise, you're going to be using better ingredients. It can produce really great food. So, that's what I, that's what I've got for sous vide cooking. I hope that helped. Um, and, uh, hopefully you, you can turn out some great food if you decide to give it a shot. Now, I have no connection with the sous vide supreme machine and, uh, I've not used it. I've just seen it on the internet. So I am in no way endorsing it. I just wanted to put that out there. And as always, I wanted to thank you, TS peers. I've missed you for the last couple of weeks. Um, so, you know, thanks for tuning in and, and listening. I wanted to let everybody know because I get a lot of emails from you sort of in the panic mode. Chef, the spices, they're not on your website. Jack talked about them. I don't have, you don't have any and I'm running low or, and, um, yeah, that was definitely the case. But now we're back in stock on four spices, the Montana steak, five, actually the Montana steak, the Northern Italian, the grilled chicken, a new one called Texas Beef and Brisket, and uh, they're in new packaging on the website. 
So I uh, wanted to let everybody know that. Also, a lot of you, many, many of you, and thank you so much, have gone on to Amazon and ordered the sauces. They are available now on Amazon in three packs, and you can also get a combination pack. The price has been lowered, and they're prime eligible, so you can get free shipping. And I appreciate everybody's support. Hope you all have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. I mean, I listened to Keith explain that, and now at least I understand it. I thought basically you took a piece of meat, you put some marinade on it, you vacuum sealed it, and you cooked it in hot water, which is what you do, but that's not how you do it. Um, I, I didn't realize that there was a like this long, slow, perfectly controlled heat involved. I thought it was just hot water. Like throw a pot of hot water on the stove and then stick your bag into like boiling bag rice from the 70s. I guess I was wrong. Um, this is one of those things, like, if somebody was going to cook me a steak this way, I just looked up what steaks look like this, and it's it's pretty awesome. He mentioned, like, you know, caramelizing the outside of the steak. You see comparison pictures, and you know how steak is, like, the outside's beautiful, and then it's, like, a little bit more done than you would want, and, you know, then you've got that layer of it where it's that perfect medium, and then you've got maybe the dead center. If you don't ruin steaks, it's usually a little less cooked than even people like me would want. Uh, but you have to leave it like that, or the whole thing is ruined, right? Um, especially when it's a big, thick steak. Well, when you, the, the, the sous vide steak, it's like the whole thing's uniformly beautiful, perfect, and then the outside's just crusted. Sounds great, but am I gonna spend $400 on a machine, uh, and then, you know, do whatever the hell this is to my steak, and then brown it, uh, I think it's more like you're, if people do this at home, you're looking at more like your dinner party type people. Uh, where I'm more like, let's have a bunch of rednecks over, play darts pool, and, and have some barbecue. So I, I'm not poo-pooing it. I'm just saying I get why this wouldn't be for everybody. But it would be interesting um, to hear from some of you that do do this and, and love it and have it as part of your life. Anyway, next question that I have is for Ben Falk, and it's on clearing land. And uh, it's a question I think a lot of people end up in. The guy bought 10 acres, and he's in a situation where he wants to clear at least an acre to grow food for his family and possibly stuff for market to make some income off of. But it's you know he's concerned, like, do you just clear an acre or do you clear pieces and parts? And how do we not, like, screw up the, the ecology that's there? Because, uh, you know, most of us that care about you know, growing our own forest full of, of apples and pears and nuts or whatever really aren't big on taking existing woodlands and cutting them down. But at some point, you got to kind of make a decision. So, Ben, what are your thoughts on this issue? I know it's a highly complex one. Uh, Jack and all and Mark, um, Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design and Expert Council um, with um, – an answer or, or thoughts, uh, um, helpful thoughts, hopefully, about your question regarding um, your 10 acres and whether or not to clear some land, an acre of land, um, to help you grow food for your family and generate revenue through market sales. So as usual, the, with, with multi-pronged, um, with questions that, that are de highly context-dependent, um, I would have to start to do this correctly and in a sound way by asking you some more questions and then try to frame 
various answer possibilities based on those questions. So my first question to you would be, where are you in the world? Is this, what kind of climate is this? Where, what are, um, your soils? Uh, how close are your access, you know, accesses to market? What are you good at doing? What do you want to do? What do you, have you done any business, um, uh, you know, market analysis or business planning to find out what kind of, um, you know, revenue streams might be viable in your area. Um, you know, how much time do you have? What's your expertise? What's your skills? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So, right. So generating, you know, an understanding of all of those context, um, questions is really important. Um, something I see from the photo you sent is that your land is seemingly all forested um, inside of the red polygon you've drawn. And the small area about the acre you said w that you are considering clearing, of course, is also forested. Um, and it sounds like a clear goal is that you want to grow a lot of food and also generate some revenue. Um I would say it's likely that you you would want some cleared open land uh, to meet your goals and not be on just ten acres of only forested land. Probably now that, that still that is context dependent um, and especially climate dependent. If you were in the humid tropics, that would put you far on the spectrum to making a case for not necessarily clearing land. You can have like high levels of food productivity and function in very quick ways um, in the humid tropics in a purely tree-based system. Not that that's not possible in, let's say, a temperate climate system, but it's 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 much more um, easily accessed and achievable in, in the humid tropics. Now, I can tell from the photo that you're probably not in the humid tropics, a little hard to tell, but it doesn't look like that from your photo. It looks like actually you're in a in a kind of almost semi-arid western half of the country, the United States type of situation. Um, not in the Pacific Northwest, I would guess, somewhere in the moister areas of, of the Rocky Mountains, if I had to if I had to guess. Um, if the 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 more um, the colder your climate within reason um, and the more humid, I think the, that would put you on the opposite end of the spectrum of the humid subtropics, but uh, to, the, to the side of the spectrum that would make a case for you clearing some land and engaging in you know, annual crop production, um, you know, in, in engaging in systems that are based in getting sunshine down to lower levels um, closer to the ground where you're growing, let's say, vegetables, vegetable crops and maybe grasses for grazing. Um, it's hard to beat a vegetable garden for just raw yield of food production of calories and sustenance per square area. Um, it might be impossible to beat that, except in maybe certain fish-based or, you know, aquaculture-based systems um, and those would be in the tropics. Um, so it's very likely, I think you would want to clear an acre. I can't tell you if that's the right acre or not, even if it is overgrown and not of value, there might be a reason to clear a different acre. Um, 
it would want to be an acre that's close to being zone one or at least zone two. So it would be highly dependent on where your home site is, which I don't know where it is or if there is one on this property. Um, but that would play into it, your access and your kind of zonal situation there. It'd want to be something that's very accessible, um, to be successful. Um, if you're going to grow something as intensive as annuals, it would want to be generally pretty low angle or you'd have to really terrace, um, the ground, if you're going to grow annuals and grow them on a, within you know, less than 5% grade, ideally. Um, and as far as, you know, would you want to do that instead of just something it blends with the existing environment like a food forest? Again, this is very context dependent. You can grow a lot of food in a food forest, especially if you're in the humid tropics, less so if you're in less... Um, diverse areas of the world as far as, as, as the forestry systems go. Um, your time frame also has a big, a big, uh, a lot to do with this, you know, how fast you want to get there. Um, so as well, your other aspect, we had another question regarding some things to think about in terms of messing up the surrounding environment. Um, if you're clearing, absolutely. There's tons to think about if you're clearing trees, how steep is the slope? Um, what kind of rainfall events do you get? Do you get, you know, periodic and heavy rainfall events or, or are you in like the, you know, the British Isles, which doesn't look like you are, uh, where you get like very, um, you get these misting types of rain events. They're not usually very heavy. Um, and they're just prolonged and light. It's a great, you know, watering type of event. Um, even if you're in that situation, you still need to plan for heavy events, but it's not as much of like a monsoonal heavy event situation, which you probably face in the world where you are, just as far as I can tell from the photo, you probably are in semi-arid semi within reason, it looks like. Um, so plan on preventing erosion as much as possible. Make sure it's, I wouldn't clear anything that's more than a 30% grade depending on a lot of factors, but that's a pretty good guideline, 20 to 30, 40% grade, not more than that. And ideally 15% or less would be good. Um, 20% or less for sure. Um, and then making sure you have, you know, close to uh, on contour or close to contour, um, ways to check the water flow and slow and spread and sink water and, and reseed quickly immediately and get you know vegetative cover down not that everything not that on contour systems are a a, a, a panacea definitely got to be careful on especially steeper slopes having on contour systems and holding water to the point where you can cause slope instability but slope stability is your primary goal that comes through vegetation um primarily and so reseeding immediately is important um citing your access ways if you're using machinery to clear is really important citing those not just up and down the slope um ideally you know two to six percent grade is pretty good for a lot of access ways to to shunt water towards ridges ideally um across slope not hold always on slope but but uh move water slowly uh down slope not let it run off um and many other erosion considerations but those are big ones um Good luck to you, and uh, wish you wish you the best. Great stuff and great considerations from Ben Falk. I'd like to throw out a request. When you send in a question for me, 
uh, for Ben, for Jeff Lawton, for Nick Ferguson, anything that's especially, I mean, it's always probably a good idea to tell us where in the world you are, but if you're asking us about planting trees or clearing slopes or growing gardens, climate is such a factor. While the patterns remain largely consistent as to what you do, the application of those, 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 uh, those patterns, the timing of the installation of those patterns, those things are so climate specific. And there's a big difference in how I might approach clearing, uh, a, a relatively flat property in Florida that's mostly white pine, uh, or clearing a, a mountainous property with a lot of exposed granite in, in, uh, in upstate Pennsylvania. I'm going to approach those differently because I have to. Uh, the orientation of slope is often really important too. Like, is it south facing, north facing, west, east? And, it, you know, a south facing slope that is a godsend in, in a northern climate may be a bit harsh in a southern one. Uh, you, you may actually do really well with eastern slopes in, 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 in more southern climates. They get all that wonderful morning sun and they're getting some shade by the time the heat of the day is up to maximum. So all of this stuff changes. Please, and I've said, I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again here because this is a perfect example. By not knowing where, you know, just, you don't have to tell it. I, I live at 7221 Evergreen Terrace or whatever. Um, you, you don't have to do that. Um, But, you know, I live in northern Wisconsin, southern Florida, central Texas, something like that. Uh, very helpful in these types of answers. Last question of the day. I have a tag team going on here, but the team didn't know they were tagging. Uh, when I send the questions out, they go to the whole council. They go to everybody. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had one where Stephen Harris had John Pugliano kind of tag team in and said, Hey, tag, you're it. Come on and finish this up for me. This one's a little bit different. The question's for Brian Black. And then when I've always said any of the council members, if you see something you'd like to add comments to, just go ahead. So I'm going to play Brian's answer to it first, and then Gary has some firsthand knowledge of a piece of the question uh, that he throws in some additional info on. I'm going to play the two of them straight up back to back here, and then I'm going to come back with my thoughts on this and then give you my final thoughts on the show, and we'll come all the way back to those shifts again. With that, go ahead, Brian. Uh, tell us about... Well, actually, let me go ahead and read the question. Uh, the guy lives in a crime-infested part of Houston. He's had a couple smash and grabs and wants to increase his security. So, Brian, what say you on this one? Hey, PSP. This is Brian Black answering an expert question from Bruce, who asks, I live in a crime-infested... <laughs> live in crime-infested Houston. Two smash and grabs in one year. I'd like to increase the security of my vehicle and my home. What are the pluses and minuses of 3M security film slash competing products? It seems that if it's a great idea, as advertised, every at-risk window in America would be covered with the stuff, Bruce. So thanks for the question, Bruce. First off, so I'm sorry to hear about your smash and grabs. What I would, what I would recommend first and foremost uh, in securing your home is, first off, turn on your outside lights. Hopefully you've got some outside lights that can project kind of the, uh, a little more light onto the situation that you have out in front of your house, which I assume is where your vehicle had a smash and grab. And then make sure some perimeter things are done to your home as well. Make sure your bushes are trimmed short in the front. Don't give people a place to hide, uh, so on and so forth. Um, upgrading any kind of external security features, like even a yard sign with a home security system, is a deterrent in itself. You just want to have as many deterrents as possible. And, again, all you're doing is buying time and making your home Uh, appear more of a to be more of a hard target and that's that's your goal is to get a would-be criminal to move on to a different location 
So security cameras are great, too. Even dummy security cameras can help. Um, these are very much deterred by the red glow of IR LEDs at night on cameras, so that might be something to look into as well. In terms of the 3M security film, the premise behind that is that the thief is kind of able to break the glass, but because of the film that's adhered to the back of the glass, it takes forever to get through. And again, I like to say all security is just buying time, and that's what you're doing. You're slowing them down. A determined criminal will still get in any way they can, and if they encounter something like that, they just might try to get in another way. So, you know, hardening your front door with something like a door devil is important, too, or anything you can do like an anti-kick device to your front door would, would be beneficial as well. hope that uh, helps you out with your question. Again, sorry to hear about your smash and grabs, but in terms of uh, vehicle windows, I hope that uh, I hope that maybe consider something like that, the 3M window film. I'm not sure how that works for a vehicle. I've never really looked into that myself, but I would imagine that uh, that might be something to uh, to put on vehicle windows as well. So thanks for the question, and uh, hope that helps. Again, if uh, you guys have any more questions, please let me know via the uh, TSP Expert Council. And uh, remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. Thanks again, TSP. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and I'm going to take on a question that was not mine originally and not health-related, but it is regarding the 3M security film and uh, if it is worth using for home security and car security. Uh, this individual, uh, Bruce, indicated that he's had uh, two smash and grabs in one year and is looking to increase his security on his car and home. He lives in a bad part of Houston. Well, I find, found this very interesting because I have firsthand knowledge of bad parts of Houston and smash and grabs. I, several years ago, when I was in, uh, still in law enforcement, we were in a bad part of Houston, and we stopped to eat. And with our car, unbeknownst to me, my uh, partner had left his uh uh, computer bag in the back seat in the open. So while we were in there, you know, we didn't know. We come out and the back window is gone. It looks like it's just completely gone. And of course, stole every everything that was in there that was worth anything. So what I noticed when I first thought I just saw the window was completely gone, I thought it was rolled down. But what he had done, because we had all our windows were tinted, which is 3M film, it's the same thing pretty much. And basically the window was punched and I'll get more into that a little later here because the, the parking lot actually had decent video surveillance. So we went back inside, we're able to get the, the video on it. And it was ended up being an MS 13 gang member who did it. Um, uh, it was found later on, but they're smart. I mean, I, I find this kind of stuff, a total waste of money. Uh, and this is why I got to see it firsthand, but these guys are smart because you have to film everything for it to work. And the film is not resistant to punctures. And what this guy did is he picked a corner of the window, smashed it. It looked, we pretty sure it was with a sharpened screwdriver and he just ran the screwdriver around the window and punched the window and it just fell right over. Because now he didn't have to worry about it breaking. It didn't make as much noise. So these guys are smart. You know, they, they're going to figure it out. I would save your money. Um, I would just get a really good alarm or move to a better neighborhood. Because I've lived in bad neighborhoods. 
I don't care. I did everything with my car. It did not matter. Uh, you know, as soon as I would fix it, they would come back and break into it again. Um, and San Diego was really well known for that, especially when I was going to college there. It was like the thar, uh, car theft and car break-in capital of the country. So my car got broken into several, several times, and all my friends and cars got stolen. Um, so that's my two cents. Now, if you want to use it far as, you know, hurricane protection, you know, so your win- windows won't shatter in your house – and for that, that it's a very viable for that. But I don't think it's a theft deterrent whatsoever. A, a smart thief will actually use it to their advantage and peel back the window using that film, film. And that way they don't get cut. It's easier for them to, to get the, the glass open and accessible with the film. Like I said, cause it doesn't break apart. You know, uh, they don't have to smash it, make a bunch of noise. They can just puncture in the window and just kind of basically rip against the glass because it's all tied to that film and peel it back and they got easy access and they can just put it back after they leave. Oh, I hope that helps in that one. Again, that was just my two cents on this question. Um, uh, I just felt that I should answer it. I, 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 I feel for Bruce been there. So take care. If you have any questions, put it in the comment section. Thanks. I want to kind of temper Gary's response with Brian's, which is all of these things are simply methods to buy you time, make it take more time for the criminal to complete his task, and thereby um, possibly cause him to bail or give time for someone to notice what's going on or for you to notice what's going on. So I, I would temper Gary's a little bit this way. First, I don't think 3M security film and tinted window film are identical. I, I do believe from my research that the 3M is a little more durable. That said, I can cut 3M uh, film with a razor knife. That's what they used to cut it with when they put it in. So the, the moment that you've breached the glass sufficiently to get to the film, you can, you can cut, gouge out the film, etc. I, I believe it actually would be more useful on home windows than on a car. Uh, absolutely. For the exact reason Gary described about how the guy basically just, you know, dropped the whole window in without worrying about it because, you know, it, it's all got all this wonderful film on it that keeps it from, you know, be, being a mess. And that way when I get in your car, I can steal your stuff, grab your stereo, whatever it is, without getting all cut up. So it makes it easier. I don't have the sound of smashing glass or whatever. Make a couple punctures and down the window goes. Okay, fine. But I would also temper it with this. When I look at things, I analyze them and say, why did this dude pick Gary's car to smash and grab? Well, if he knows everything you just heard, he probably would say, hey, that car has tinted windows. This is easy. Where if you have a clear window film, it's not like, hey, look, I have window film. Come break my window in and don't make a noise. So the, the person that goes to smash and grab your car is more likely to not be prepared for that. So it has more potential to buy you time. So I'm not going to say that it's worth it or a waste of money. I'm saying that you kind of have to look at it in that totality. Because the guy that's used to just busting a window and it just caves in um, may not be prepared for that eventuality. If he's a, a younger criminal that hasn't you know smartened up a little bit to these ways yet. Because let me tell you what I've seen. I, I watched this done, and it was done so fast. I couldn't believe it. 
we were, it was a long time ago. We had an office up in Richardson, and you, we could see pretty far down the road. I'd say like 100 yards. And this guy, you could tell he was up to something. He walks up to this car, and he I don't know what he had in his hand, but like Gary said, like a punch or something like that. He has something against his belly. He leans into the window, and he goes, and the whole window just goes in. The whole window just goes in. And we're like, holy crap. And it took like a second to register what was going on. And then we started yelling, running up the road. We're going we're gonna to get this guy, right? He has the door open, reaches in, and jerks the stereo out. Now, I've taken stereos out of cars. These guys must know something I don't. Because he was gone with that stereo, just gone before we could figure out where he went. It was It was that fast. It was... The whole thing was was maybe 15 seconds. And I'm talking about from the point where like he's looking around and you go, something's up, to the window's open, the door's the window's gone, the door's go open, the stereo's out, and the guy's running down the street gone. You know, with a hundred yard lead on you, he probably had a place to go, uh, maybe a guy working with him, he jumped in a car, whatever, just gone. And we call the police and they're like, Yeah, it happens all the time. So in that instance, I do believe that that film may have impeded him a little bit. And we may have been able to run him off, or not. I don't know. I don't know. I do know that I have seen, I can't find the video, but I've seen a video of a business that used this film, and a guy picks up a center block, and he throws it out the window to break through the store glass, and the center block hits the glass, bounces back, and hits him in the head and knocks the hell out of him. So I'm not saying it doesn't work, or it does work. I'm saying that it has its limits. And I have not made the investment myself. I guess that's the most telling thing. I think it might be useful. It might be beneficial. And if you've taken care of all your other security needs, and you still have security dollars left, then I might consider it for certain applications. All right. So let's talk about shifts. Um, let me tell you the song that we're going to close the show with today. Video Kill the Radio Star. And I chose that song for a reason. Today I was going through top songs of decades and things like that to look for something to play for you guys. And I saw that and I went, man, I remember that when I was a little kid. I remember that we got cable and there was this new thing called MTV coming out. And I remember we watched the debut of MTV. It was like a big deal. And that was the first song ever played on MTV. And I was, you know six or seven or something like that. I was a little kid. And I was like, wow, there's video of a music song on TV. And I thought this was awesome. And I think a lot of kids from the late 70s, early 80s, that remember that, even if you didn't see the debut, like it was on all the time. There weren't that many music videos when MTV started. There was a lot of re replay, replay, replay. Um, Kind of grew up with the concept that that song was about that moment because it's the most the most famous part of that song is it was the first song about you know first song on MTV so it was like music moving from the radio to the television but it was really about entertainment moving from radio to television which had already happened in fact you know moving from radio to 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 video whether it be in a cinema. Uh, or whether it be on a TV, and how people actually used to run their lives around the radio. Uh, one of the lines in the song, one of the first lines, was, I heard you on the wireless back in 52. 
Yeah, people don't even think about the fact that we used to call the radio the wireless. You know, it's making fun of old people now when they say, "Hey, you hear it on the wireless, right?" But I heard you on the wireless back in '52, lying awake, intent at tuning in on you. If I was young, it didn't stop you coming through. And, and it, it, this is what this song is about. It's about the advancement of technology being useful and exciting, yet also having consequences. So there were entire, um, you know, empires that were built on radio that either adapted to television or disappeared. But did video really kill the radio star? In, in the context of this song, it did, yet you're listening to me right now in an evolution of radio. Radio or audio is a better way to look at it because now we've even changed the means by which one can receive audio. One can listen to it stream live off an internet feed. One can listen to it on a radio. Uh, one can download and listen to it off of a, 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 an MP3 player, though very few people use them anymore because smartphones have taken over the MP3 player's world, but yet the content type remains. But you aren't tuning in to hear War of the Worlds or Little Orphan Annie or anything else that they used to put on radio. No, you're tuning in to hear something educational or entertaining or listen to music or something like that. And the whole world changed, and yet some piece of this came with us. That could not be a better analog for what we're seeing right now. I heard from some several people today freaking out because the stock market's crashing. I mean, not just listeners. I mean, people I know like texting me on the phone. Um about, you know, what's what's coming. I'm like, I think you're looking at the beginning of another recession. Not as bad as 08, but pretty bad, and it's going to suck, and uh, there's going to be a lot of gnashing of teeth, and a lot of it's psychological and political as well. But, you know, I said this last year, that we would get through this. The year had no upside, and we would come into this first quarter. And I think what's really going to hurt is when the, the fourth quarter numbers for 2015 come out, You know, at the end of the first quarter of 2016, like anybody's going to be surprised, but everybody's going to ask surprise and ah, jump out of buildings, etc. But this isn't about Obama's financial policy sucks or Bush sucked first and now Obama's just dealing with it or whatever people want to make political out of that. That's not what this is about. It wouldn't matter who was president. It wouldn't matter who's controlling the Congress or the Senate because this isn't a U.S. economic problem. This is a global economic problem. And it's because we've reached the limits of the current systems. And I mean all of them. I've been saying this all week, but I want to finish with it. We have reached a point where we need to innovate new solutions to our problems and new solutions to our desires and wants and new solutions to the legacy we're creating for our children. The financial system that we have today is a failure. Anybody with any brains that can do math, would just look at it today and go, what this does as far as a burden on the future generation and the devaluation of wealth for future generations is obscene. And you can see it right now. When you hear about wealth and equity, it's just a logical progression of this system. It, it has to work that way. It's designed to work that way. It wouldn't matter if you put the most benevolent man in the world at the head of the Federal Reserve today and replaced the whole board of directors with benevolent people that wanted to use the Federal Reserve system as best they could, put good people in the White House, good people in the Senate, good people in Congress, shot, killed, dead all the lobbyists, and left them with this system. Mathematically, you can't get anywhere else. 
You can't have a system based on debt that requires debt for monetary creation in a society that requires exponential growth continuously and not end up where we are. Can't do it. You can't take an education system that requires children to sit in chairs, listen to a teacher, and do things the way they were doing them almost exactly the same other than a bit of technology since 1860 in a day and age where kids are walking around with a phone with more computer power than the computer, all the computer banks together that put the first man on the moon and expect that system not to fall in on itself. You also can't take that system that was designed for a population density of the 1800s and early 1900s and expect it to work when you have high schools with 1,200 to 2,000 students in one school. You can't. It won't work. It doesn't work. It's not designed to work that way. That system is a failure. And you can just keep going. Every major system, our food system, you can't completely centralize a food system designed for a time when most foods that were produced were consumed within the nations that they were produced. Totally centralize that then have a society switch over to eating mostly imported foods, destroy your local producers, and expect that system wouldn't fail. You, 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 you can just keep going. By centralizing water, especially in the western states, instead of encouraging the preservation, conservation, and usage of water where it falls... And, and, and causing massive amounts of evaporation on top of the centralized uh, retention in these dams, and, and then pumping water for 20, 30, 40, 50, 150, 250, 300 miles in open canals, subject to irrigation the whole way, to irrigate one crop. You can't do that and not destroy the water system. Look at the droughts. The systems themselves have reached the point of where they're capable of being stable under technology that's available, population, desire, growth of affluency, it's done. So that means that this recession is not a new recession. Okay, And I'm calling it a recession before anybody else does. I just want to go on record with that. It is a recession that never quit. I've told you this is the long, slow erosion of this system. Not... To, you know, for the purpose, because Neil Franklin and I have this discussion, he goes, I don't see how they benefit by destroying the middle class. I don't think they want to. They want to, they want to squeeze you, but they don't want to destroy you. If they destroy you, they destroy themselves. Yeah, they can't help but destroy themselves. They, they have a detonator in one hand and a detonator in the other hand, and, and the detonator is, both detonators are wired to a cherry bomb in a Coke can that they're holding between their legs and trying to figure out how to juggle. That, that's where the elite are right now. They're screwed too. They're not as screwed as you are because they have this vast amount of wealth, but to maintain their power complex and their monopoly, they're running out of tools to do it with. And they don't really know where to go from here because they're locked into the existing paradigm. But technology, innovation, and human beings are going to drag us through these evolutions. You'll see so many exciting things happen in the next 20 years it's going to be one of the most exciting and painful times to be alive at the same time ever. But it's up to you to adapt to it. It's up to you just to accept this. 
you're not going to change it. You're not going to fight it. You're not going to put it back the way that it was. The utopian view, if we could just make America like it was 1955, let's leave all the things that were wrong with America, really, really deeply culturally wrong with America in 1955. And let's just understand, 1955 doesn't work in 2016. It doesn't work. The, our, 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 our highway system is a failure. It's a failure. Because we built something with a monetary system that would make it impossible to maintain it. That, that's why our highway system is crumbling. That's why our bridges are crumbling across America. It's worse than you think it is. It's not about a couple potholes on a back street in your neighborhood. We, we, we are probably 20 years out before you start seeing bridges just drop. In this country, they've already been there for 20 to 30 years longer than they were supposed to be in many instances. They were strategically replacing the ones we absolutely have to, but we can't keep up with it. The cost of doing it has gone. Think about this. My father made more money than a doctor in the 1970s as a construction worker with overtime. Not a doctor today, a doctor of the day. A, a practicing physician of the day made less money than my dad did on an annual basis because he would just work 60, 70, 80, and he could get the hours. Okay, That was what highway jobs paid back then. Today, uh, that kind of construction worker doesn't make that much more money than he made then. Not inflation adjusted, just hourly. We're talking hourly rate is 4 to $5 more. 40 years later, 40 years later, 45 bucks over 40 years, you get a dollar a raise every 10 years in that line of dangerous hard work. But the cost of putting in a mile of highway has skyrocketed. The labor is not nearly anywhere near higher than it was, but the cost of actually doing it has gone through the roof. There's only one explanation for that. The economic system requires it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Other than it has to be designed to fail. So while technically the construction methodology of our highway system is a marvel, if you build that in the 50s, in the 60s, in the early 70s, and if you understood the economic system, you know it can't be viable 40 years later for what you've built to be maintained, let alone to continue to add on to it. So what do we have to do? We have to change everything. We have to develop new technologies, new ways of thinking, and take old technologies and reapply them. We have to decentralize. And no one in power benefits from this. You want to redistribute wealth? Let me tell you how you do it. I know some people are going, oh, God, I don't want to hear that. No, I, I actually want to talk about the redistribution of wealth by market forces. Not through, I'm going to take what you have because you have more than him and give him some because I'm very generous with your money. That's what, that's what government means by the redistribution of wealth. You, you can't actually look at the control of wealth in the world today as the same person and say there's no need to redistribute wealth. You can't. You can't look at a society where, you know, one per, actually a, a fraction of one percent controls the majority of wealth and think that's okay. If you think that's okay, you either don't really understand what it means or you're a sick person and you're probably one of those people. Okay? So it's a problem. So how do you redistribute wealth? 
you decentralize control. You decentralize food, you decentralize energy, you decentralize water, you decentralize health, you decentralize education, you decentralize everything. And the key is today, a person that comes up with a way that works can share it with a phone with a hundred million people if a hundred million people will pay attention to in a day. It's never happened before in history. So this shift will come faster at some times in history than it has sometimes in history this time around. In some ways it'll come slower because the means of control have also advanced as well. But one way or another, new technologies, new ways of thinking are going to kill old ways of thinking. You're going to see rapid advancement and you're going to see a beast that's dying, throwing its, you know, its last throes of death and it can be dangerous. So be strong, but get shit done. Don't use this as an excuse. You 30-somethings and 20-somethings that use this shit as an excuse, get off your ass, get a job, get two jobs, get three jobs, make some money, and figure your way the hell out of that situation. You people that are looking at retirement in 10 years and going, I don't know what I'm going to do, figure something out. Do something. Put resiliency in your life while you still can before you're complaining that you can't. People that are already retired, you're probably actually better off than you think you are. You'll get the money they promised you from Social Security, even though it's not enough to do what you really want to do, and you are where you are. And you still have the ability to teach others, to preserve the knowledge that you have, that you've learned through your whole life. And some, I know people that are 80 years old that work as hard as I do physically. That's you great. I don't care where you are. Get you done. Make it happen. you got a week end to do it. And this song's kind of quirky and weird sounding and all. It's never been a favorite of mine. I'm just kind of a novelty. But think about its real meaning as you go through this weekend. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.